Guy Pratt is a session bass legend. He's been the touring bass player for Pink Floyd since 1987 and recorded with other pop legends such as Michael Jackson, Madonna, Brian Ferry, Robbie Robertson and many, many more. As well as his hugely successful bass career, Guy has also dabbled in acting, he's a stand-up comic and author of the hilarious and insightful My Bass and Other Animals. This interview is absolutely hilarious in itself as Guy leads you through some of the great anecdotes from his career while providing an insight into how he came to be a first call session musician for so many great acts. So let's join Ellen as she sits down to talk bass with the one and only Guy Pratt. Hello and welcome to the Talking Bass Podcast with me, your host, Ellen O'Reilly, and my guest, Guy Pratt. Hello. <laughs> oh, do I have to do that as well? <laughs> yeah, why not? Let's, let's do a Mexican wave. Right, so yeah, obviously, Guy has been a top session bass player. He's played with absolutely everyone in the universe. Madonna, Michael Jackson, Pink Floyd, do, do, and a host of others, loads and loads and loads. He's also the great and the near great. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, like so, guy. Come here, tell me, how did it all start for for, for you? You know, how did the whole music thing happen? Uh, <clears throat> well, I had my sort of um, epiphany. Uh, I mean, I was into music when I was a kid, but not. I was more into the technology. I was I was obsessed with cassette players, which was the thing then. So I used to spend all my school holidays mooching around the Sony showroom in Regent Street. Which was really, which felt like you were, it was a set from a James Bond film, all this incredible electronic stuff, which now, of course, is incredibly hokey. It was like big radio receivers and turntables and cassette players. And um, so, so for me, it was more when I got, I got given a Sony TC66 cassette player as a Christmas present. And so for me, music was more stuff to, to listen to on my cassette player than. Than, than the other way around you know it was uh, it was the medium rather than the message i was interested in so it was things so but i had things like i was really into bowie but then it'd be but tubular bells um and the um, the soundtrack to 2001 a space odyssey it was more yeah it was i guess it was more audiophile than anything else um and, I, and i'd loved slade and stuff like that and then i it was when i i was on a family holiday in hollyhead we used to go up to hollyhead and go sailing mm. Um, yeah, it was, wasn't great. Well, it was great. The holidays were great. Sailing wasn't. It was like child abuse, frankly. And, um, <laughs> uh, and I had an older cousin who sort of bullied me into smoking. Uh, and the first time I sort of properly smoked a cigarette, I sort of, it made me feel sick. And I went upstairs to lie down on, on, in his bedroom. And I so lay down in the bed. When I, when I sort of came around a bit, I saw he had a cassette player. Whoa, a cassette player. So I just hit play. And it was Who's Next? And Barbara O'Reilly started. And it was just, what? What? And I'd just never heard anything. I'd never heard anyone mean anything that much. Not even quite sure what he meant. But it, but it was just that. And then I turned it over. And uh, that's why I listened to the next song, which was Getting In Tune. And then for some reason, I turned it over, uh, being a cassette. And of course, because of the length of that, that was the exact start of Won't Get Fooled Again. And it was like, all right, I'm done. I'm done. And it's like everything I'd ever thought or cared about was out the window. It's like that. That's what I want to do. Um, so obviously I wanted a guitar. So I then spent months pleading with my parents to get me an electric guitar. Uh, and of course my mum said, oh no darling, why don't you get a nice Spanish one? And I was like, Spanish? Fuck that. It was the electric bit I was interested in, you know. A toaster would have been nearer what I was after than a Spanish guitar, frankly. <laughs> so, uh, so I asked for a bass guitar and even I really didn't know, um, what the difference was or what it was or anything. And so I got this thing and it was this... Great big, and it was horrible, really. I mean, it just wasn't that sexy or exciting, and I didn't have an amp or anything. And but then the brilliant thing was when I got back to school after, because my 
my, my birthday is right in the, so it was in the Christmas holidays. But when I got back to school, about three other kids had got electric guitars. And rather than me jealous, I suddenly realised, but hang on a minute. If any of them wanted to be a band, <laughs> they needed me, right? So, so I had my pick. And, um, and the guy I picked, the guy I got in with, was actually someone who was you know, a year above. It's always a year above, isn't it? You, everyone you want to hang out with is a year above. Uh, and there was this one guy who who'd I always thought was you know incredibly cool and be desperate to be mates with anyway. Who was this guy called Martin Glover, and so we started this band called The Nice Pair of Three. All the original material. Martin wrote all the songs, and uh, Martin would then leave school and change his name to Youth and go on to be the legendary bass player, producer, composer that we know. Wow. So that's how I started. Also at school, his best mate was uh, this guy Alex, Alex Patterson, who then went on to start the Orb. Amazing. So, um, yeah, and, that was, and the funny thing is, we were actually pretty much... Now, there was one other person, I didn't really know, there was one other person called Lance Ellington, who wanted to be, who apparently fancied himself as a singer. And the extraordinary thing is that most schools have like hundreds of kids who go, yeah, I'm going to start a band, I'm going to start a band. And the thing is, at our school, as far as I'm aware, there are only four of us who really wanted to do music. And we all pulled it off, everyone. You know, it was like an, an actually eminently sensible career choice. <laughs> that's amazing. That's a, like, yeah. that's like a magic school. It, it's kind of like Ealing College of Art. I mean, uh, for some reason, everyone came out of it. Freddie Mercury came out of there and... Uh, Pete Townsend. Pete Townsend and a whole other cool heads all came out of this one zone. Yeah. yeah it's weird. Yeah, so but the only, the only person we had, the only person in the school's history uh, up to then was one of the Glitter Band. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Not even sure which one. <laughs> um, but yes, then we've got actually also well, my year mate, uh, one of my year mates was Andrew Adonis. So there you go. <laughs> Amazing trivia so, fans. So what about like? So what was it about bass that you fell in love with? Like, and who were your nothing? I mean, nothing, nothing. I, did, I didn't fall in love with the bass at all for ages. Um, but but I had you know the good thing is, is I had it, and my dad had bought me it, and then you know I mean I don't know but then my dad died. Um, he'd also given me a copy of Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, which is something that would, I, I forgot about till years later, which then you know, became very spooky. Uh, mm. But it was this weird thing, and my dad had given it to me. It was my last connection with my dad, so I was going to learn to play it. Mm. And, you know, that's, so that's what I was going to do. Um, if he'd still been around, <laughs> I probably would have ended up going to college and doing something sensible, but uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, so, so, yeah, that was it. I'd so... I, I, I just decided I was going to get good at it. I decided that what, what was what I was going to do. And I didn't, you know, and, and it, it was more a question of I learned to love it. You know, because I wasn't even really into listening to, it was a couple of years before I got into kind of all the cool music. Because I was listening to rock. I was only interested in rock and roll. I, I, you know, I thought kind of soul and disco wasn't really that, you know, it was, was schmaltzy. I didn't realise that's, that's actually where all the action was. It was then reggae when I discovered, I mean, the, the first time I, I, I think I really got into it was when I discovered um, Aston Family Man, Barrett, you know, with Bob oh, Marley. Yeah. And it was a sunny thought. Because what's amazing about that is, is because of, this was at the time of, of um, you know, fusion and everything. And everyone was talking about Stanley Clark and Jacka Pastorius. And you just go, yeah, I can't do that. And, um, and, you know, I still can't do that. And the things I don't want to do that. I love that people do do that. And I love, and I very much enjoy hearing people do that, but I don't want to do that. I think if I learned how to do all that, that would actually spoil the stuff that I do do. Do you know what I mean? I think you do do. You, you do do. Well, you, <laughs> I, you can be too, technically, you can be too good, you know, for a certain type of music. I, that's why, you know, 
you know, I mean, Jacko would not have been a great fit for Pink Floyd. It's very mm. simple, you know. In the same way as that's why, even though he is one of, my, one of my absolute idols and heroes, I think it's better that I got the Floyd gig than Tony Levin did. Yeah, because <laughs> Tony Levin would always be Tony Levin, whereas I became that guy associated with Pink Floyd, and you know, gave it my heart and soul and everything. Whereas he would always have one foot in Peter Gabriel, and you know, and it would wouldn't be the same. So, um, but yeah, also there was a thing. You've got to bear in mind that what um, that timing-wise, I was very very lucky because then with punk, the whole idea of you know, punk came along. And suddenly, the whole idea of musicianship didn't really matter. And it was, and suddenly the coolest guy in the band was the bass player. Suddenly you had Jean-Jacques Bernal and, and Simo with The Clash, and, you know, and suddenly these were the guy, you know, these, they were so cool. Mm. And, uh, but, but then with the birth, then with the new romantic thing, then everything sort of, the, and which coincided with the birth of hip hop. And suddenly we were all in a funk and disco and all that stuff. And then, so my salad days were the 80s, which was the best decade to be a bass player. Mm. Absolutely. And the worst decade to be a guitarist. <laughs> it was like, you know, we owned their ass then, frankly. It was, it, it really was, you know, it used to be, you know, the, the, the bass stopped being the poor cousin. It was like you wanted to be the bass player in the band. He was the guy. So what was it like after, so once you started, you, you were playing in like, you had punk bands and stuff like that. Yeah, I was in a mod band, which was a, t a complete, which was a terrible, because that was obviously always going to be a cul-de-sac. That was clearly never going to go anywhere. It was, and, um, but I liked it because I thought it meant it was like being a punk, but you got to be smart. Oh, and right. You know, cause I, because I'm just not, rebel. much as I'd like to think of I'm a rebel, I'm really not. I'm actually incredibly <laughs> conformist. So being a mod suited my sensibilities very well. <laughs> Plus, there was a lot of Motown involved. And, I, you know, by that point, I'd realised that, you know, the Jameson was kind of where the action was at. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 and, and the annoying thing is, actually, the annoying thing is, is that uh, our guitarist's brother used to, this is my first band, Speedball, this mod band. Our guitarist's brother used to occasionally do the cloakroom at Blitz. And he, used to, and he used to invite me. And I was like, no, nah, thanks. And he used to think, fuck, why didn't you go? Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could have been in Ultravox or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what happened after Speedball? Was that when Ice House came calling? No, it was a couple of years between. I then, I then sort of, I got kicked out of home because I was smoking about, and I went and squatted, lived in squats around Notting Hill, which is what everyone did back then. And, um, and I just had various little gigs. I, because uh, I was best, because, because I, I lived just opposite uh, my mate Youth, right, who was then in Killing Joke, who, who you know, amazing, terrifying, they had a record deal and everything, and they were really frightening. And, um, and so I used to hang around with them a lot. And then there were, they had this weird split up where um, jazz had a vision to do with the end of the world. I mean, everything was very, you've got to remember the early 80s, everything was the end of the world. I mean, all our dreams were mushroom cloud shaped. You know, you had Maggie and Ronnie and their evil empires. People forget it was very, you know, didn't have the terrorist threat. We had literal World War Three threats. Very, very real. There were missiles pointing at everyone. And um, and so he'd had this vision about an island at the end of the world. So he'd fucked off to, to Iceland. And just as they were having their first hit, and they got, uh, and then and, and then suddenly Geordie, the guitarist, went off to Iceland. And it turned out that they're basically trying to get youth out of the band. So he took Paul, big Paul the drummer, and started this band called Brilliant. And which was originally two drummers and youth and me and two bass players, which is a terrible idea, right? A terrible, <laughs> terrible idea. We didn't even have a guitarist, just had a singer. And um, 
And I was doing that, but at the same time, I got asked to stand in, there was a bunch of sort of posh, trendy guys I'd met around Notting Hill called Funkapolitan, who were very, very cool. And they, they, um, and they were very much into the burgeoning new sort of hip-hop funk scene. And their bass player was Tom Dixon, right? The guy who went on to become the great furniture designer. But he was a bass player and he, <laughs> broke, his, he broke his arm. And so I got asked to stand in for him on their, on their um, UK tour. So that was the first kind of proper UK tour I did. So I was just getting funny little gigs like that. And then, yeah, the brilliant thing didn't work out. Yeah, then I, I, I don't know what happened with brilliant. I ended up just not doing that. And then I was in a splinter group called The Children of Seven with JC and Chris Payne from the members of Sound of the Suburbs fame. And that was the first, and we got a single out on Stiff Records called Solidarity, which is a sort of weird, ironic disco thing. And... And then I got the coolest of all gigs, rest his soul, I got the gig with Sylvain Sylvain from the New York Dolls, who was just adorable. And, that was, and he took me to Paris and to Stockholm. And, uh, you know, that was just amazing. Um, and also it was great because it gave me total punk credibility for the rest of my life. I can go and do the crappest gigs ever, but I'll always have played for Sylvain Sylvain. <laughs> so, and then, yeah, and then the Ice House gig came about because... Ice House been flowers. They, they was hugely successful band in Australia, and they got a massive, just got a massive American record deal, and then they sort of split up. <laughs> the management said, "I think the best thing for you blokes is to split up. You clearly hate each other." Mm-hmm. And Ivor Davis was the main talent. And then because they were so sort of new wave and pretentious, they wanted. And, and in Australia, everything was still very meat and two veg rock and roll, <coughs> and they wanted. Um, and what could be more pretentious than an English bass player? <laughs> And their manager had a mate who worked at Virgin Records, a guy called, um, oh, I've forgotten his name. But anyway, the thing is, I used to hang around the Virgin offices a lot, because just trying to blag free promo copies of records to go and sell and stuff. And then, so their manager called up, called, <laughs> called up Virgin and said, listen, we're looking for, do you know any, any bass players? We need someone young, and you know, who basically won't cost anything. Um, and and um, oh, I can't remember his name. I know him so well. This is a real old person thing that's happened to me. He said to the manager, yes, actually, I do know one bloke, and frankly, I could do with getting him out of my office. So I got <laughs> asked to audition for this band, and, um, and then was flown off to Australia, where to, to be in what, this band that was a huge pop group, you know, on telly and pits and girls chasing you down the road and everything, and it was brilliant. But what was really brilliant about that was that I did this three-month tour with them, and then came home, and was nothing, was just another twat sitting in a laundrette. <laughs> which is actually really, really good for you. And I, I used to think, God, if you're Simon Le Bon or someone, you could really do with that. <laughs> you know, just, just go home and just be a twat, you know, just be no one. It's very, very good for you. So there you go. And then I was with them for a couple of years, which was you know, a really great time. So made one, re- two albums with them, one of which I would say is a great lost gem of the 80s, a thing called Measure for Measure. Um, and then we did this big, then we got our support Bowie and on the Bowie tour, we did these German festivals and on these German festivals, Robert Palmer was on the bill and he spotted me. He invited me out to the Bahamas and we ended up writing a song together, which then he then got asked to do the power station album. My song got on the power station album. I got snuck in to New York to play on it. Then I met Bernard Edwards. Bernard Edwards then asked Robert to get me to play on his album, the the addicted to Riptide, the addicted to love album, because he liked the look of me. And, And, 
And then through Icehouse, we'd been using Rhett Davis, Brian Ferry's producer. He then stole me from Icehouse, said you'd be perfect for Brian. So then I'm playing with Brian Ferry. And then through that, Johnny Marr comes through the door and then Johnny and I fall in love with each other. And he drags me off to go and play with Kirsty McCall and play on loads of other sessions. And it was just, you know, it was just, I, did, I had nothing to do with anything. I had no plan. <laughs> I, you know, I had no, literally, as I said, you know, a career, is, I did, a career isn't something I had, it's something I did. I just careered wildly from <laughs> one thing to the other. And, you know, basically drunk the whole time as well. I mean, it's extraordinary. You know, that is one hell of an explosion of, of a career. Like, there's, there's so many people who would kill for all that, you know? I mean... Yeah, no, and, and I would. I would have killed. Luckily, I didn't have to kill anyone, you know, either. You know, I did it all by just getting to be really nice to people. And you know, I, I, I never had, to, I never crawled over anyone for a gig. I never, you know, well, the only thing I, time I ever did that was when after a year and a half working with the Dream Academy, playing clubs and stuff like that with them, after they'd had their hit, when it came to doing their second album, Hugh Padgham uh, was brought in to produce. And of course, he brings in all of Peter Gabriel's band. He brings in Tony Levin and Jeremy Marotta, Larry Fast, you know, some, and, and these guys are my heroes and my logical sort of reaction should have been, oh yeah, no, no, fair enough, can't argue with that. But it's funny, but it wasn't. I was like, actually, no, Tony Levin isn't playing bass on this album. I'm playing bass on this album. This is my <laughs> fucking album. And I didn't feel bad about it because I think, well, you know, Tony just goes and says yes to two of the 79 gigs he's probably going to say no to. So, um, uh, so I did actually knock Tony out of the way for that. But it's true, but that was my gig, you know. So, yeah. so yeah, that's the only time I ever kind of crawled over anybody. And that's hardly crawling over anyone anyway. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Tony, exactly. we're mates. It's fine. I mean, how old were you when the whole ice... ice well, I was... I was I, um, the, actually, the, the hysteri historical record is slightly wrong. But I, I, because it was made out... Because it, it, there was always a big thing of ours, of a 19-year-old guy, Pratt. You know, and I thought, yeah. So I've always had the thing in my head. Yes, I was 19. And I always went along with it. Yeah, it's amazing I was only 19. And I suddenly thought, hang on, it's 1982. I wasn't 19, I was 20. But it's, of course, it's the difference between being a teenager and not being a teenager. So I was actually 20 when that started. And then, then that whole mad period, which sort of culminated in me getting the Pink Floyd gig, was five years. Wow. That's just yeah. insane. All right, so you're, you're plucked from obscurity in London, right? Right. Yeah. Twenty years old, and yeah. off to Australia, massive band, and then one thing like leads to another, like not in a sexy way, but in a good musical way. <laughs> and then in a sexy way as well, quite playing... often. <laughs> ah, I know. I read your book, guy. You filth bag. <laughs> so, five years later, Pink Floyd, one of the yeah. biggest bands in the world, mental. So right, and then also meeting all the heroes because I know you're you love Bernard Edwards and 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 the, the yeah, disco yeah. the disco stuff. Like, what was it like yeah. meeting him? Was he sound? He was he was more than sound. I mean, the the time I the first time I met him was when uh, um, Robert uh, because it was to play on this song, uh, the um, Go to Zero, the one I'd written. It had this incredibly simple bass line. I'm not plugged in, but. Mm. Right, it was that. Yeah. And, um, and uh, yeah, but, and Robert was 
so obsessive about articulation and you know everything had to be literally just so and so and and john taylor could play it fine but he couldn't play it like that so i was flown over to new york and snuck in to the power station to do the sort of you know i wasn't going to be on the record but i had to do a sort of color by numbers thing for john to play along so and, and i had to go into the studio and it was just robert and bernard edwards and i, and I was you know i was 22 and i was just so so scared and i had this thing when i plugged in to start and i started playing i had this automatic thing i always used to do, probably still do that when i start playing to get a sound i play my feet keep dancing by chic and i completely forgot who was in the room and i just started playing my feet keep dancing and suddenly this big voice goes shut up motherfucker make me feel old <laughs> <laughs> and it was but oh. do you know what the one really really sweet thing really lovely thing that um i got to do in later life one thing I thought was at the time, I said to Nard, right? I said, I've just got to tell you, I am so scared right now, right? I'm so terrified being in this room with you. Um, who, if anyone, would do that to you? Who would make you feel the way I do right now? And it, without, without a second's hesitation, he went, Chuck Rainey. Went, whoa, okay. And I forgot about that for years until a few years ago, I was at a Warwick base camp thing in Germany. I and I got there. to meet Chuck Rainey, which was, yeah, 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 of course, yeah. yeah. And I met Chuck Rainey. And I said, did you know Bernard Edwards? And he said, no, man. I said, no, I love that cat. Love that cat. You know, love his, love him. but no, I never got to meet him. And I told him that story. I got to tell him that that's what Bernard Edwards said to me about him. Oh, and he'd that's never amazing. Heard it. And it was, oh. Yeah, that was so nice. What was his reaction? <laughs> it was just like, oh, well, you know, what, what could it be? He punched me. Um, <laughs> and, oh, <laughs> <laughs> he cried and embraced you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, but that, that was a really nice thing to be able to do to pass on. But then, but so then when, but when Nard, you know, Nard got rid of Robert's band except for his drummer Donnie Wynn, for when he produced Robert's album, and uh, and brought in all his super hot, you know, the New York guys. He brought in um, Eddie Martinez and um, Jeff Bova. Not Jeff. Is it Jeff Bova? Uh, and Tony Thompson and. <clears throat> but he said to Robert, hey, that English kid of yours, I like him. Bring him in. And I was like, all right, so I got flown out. And I didn't bring a bass with me. He said, don't bring a bass. So I turned up. But come spot. I mean, it has, this is so intimidating. And I, and I haven't got a bass. I haven't got a bass. He goes, go on up in that case. I thought you might like that. And I opened it up. There's the music man. Wow. It's that one. So <laughs> that's what I play. Oh, my God. How did it feel? Like, what was it like? Oh, it was bad because he was so sweet. He knew. I mean, I was way out of my depth. I shouldn't really have been there. You know, it's like <laughs> it's fine me working, but but you, you know, putting me in a room with those guys, it was kind of. I was, you know, they're all up there. I mean, and um, so I, uh, I must, you know, Bernard ended up playing most of the bass. I mean, I ended up on one song on the album, but I, although I'd played on quite a lot of things that didn't make it to the album, but Bernard used to take me into the games room and sit me down and give me little lessons. You know, which was but in in a really and. And I suddenly realised that could have actually really fucked me up. That could have really thrown me off, you know, because he clearly felt I needed help. Oh. But it, it actually wasn't. There was something so kind and paternal about him where, you know, he clearly thought, you know, you know, he, he clearly, in the same way as, you know, people say, but when you meet Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney knows exactly what it's like to be Paul McCartney. And he, and he, he does, he works so hard at kind of trying to put you at ease about the fact, you know, he know, you know, he spent his life being Paul McCartney. He knows what it's like for everyone. And, you know, Bernard had that same thing of, of not like, yeah, I'm great or anything. It was just like, 
look, I'm Bernard Edwards and I, and you're a young bass player. Obviously, this is going to be doing your nut. Mm. You know, so and he well, he just could not have been nicer. Funny enough, you know, funny enough, uh, um, uh, I spoke to Bon Jovi for some, John Bon Jovi for something the other day. And he said this, because he had this thing where he used to get demo time at the power station in the glory day. He was there when it was all going on. And, uh, and he said, you know, you could tell the people who are really going all the way because they were always really, really nice. He said, you know, Bernard and Niall, they were in there every day and they're always like, hey, kid, how's your demos going? You know, how's it, blah, blah. Apparently even Mick used to be really nice to it and Bowie, everyone was always really, really nice. He said, there are people who are assholes to me, but you wouldn't know their name. Ah. Oh. <laughs> Well, an a great thing that Bob Billy Corgan said when we interviewed him, he said, the thing is, is when you're, you know, when you have your mountain of success, right, you go, when you're coming down the other side of your mountain of success, the terrible thing is you don't realise you're coming down the mountain. You think this is a dip. <laughs> uh, actually, when you were talking about, like, how you felt meeting Bernard Edwards, right, you're going to get all blushy now, right, but you are my favourite bass player of all time, right? And... Yeah, all right, whatever. But you are, and uh, like I met you. I can't think times. why. I mean, I genuinely can't think why. But uh, th thank you. Oh. I know. I know. I, Don't but, uh, start and, me. You know. I'll go on. But I'll tell you honestly. You are. Yeah, I'm absolute. But that's th no. Thank you. That no. That that is genuinely thrilling. And thank you because you're a yeah. great bass player. I know. Oh, that, so. <laughs> I'm so glad this is recorded. Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's 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 my life. Uh, but no, honestly, God, like I mean, massive fan. Like every, all the records you played on, and the way you play, like your sound, it sounds like you, and that's what's so cool about it. But it's not like when you were talking about like the over technical thing. I'm not into that either. I like feel and groove and yeah. ripping it up, but in a tasteful, cool way. Like when you when you rip it, it's it's cool. It's not too much. It's not. Ugh. I just I just love your style, you know. And oh, your sound, you. and I've got. I went and bought yeah, five the, OC2 the funny... pedals because of you. <laughs> You've got what? I bought like five OC2 pedals because of you. Like, I was like, I need one more and one more because they're very hard to find. <laughs> yeah, mine's just broken, funnily enough. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's not working for me. I don't know what's going on. But um, yeah, but is it, the sound thing is very funny, isn't it? Because I know I have a sound, and there's different sounds I use, but I know I have a sound. But the thing is, and there are some people who go, you know, what's the secret of your sound? I go, well, I do this and I do that. And it's very important to do that. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't really know. You know, obviously, the, I tend to, it, it's, you know, I tend to use all, I like a two pickup bass. Um, you know, when, when I can, it's all, all bridge pickup and, you know, half to two thirds neck pickup and tone usually full up. But, and, and it's other than that, I don't, I can't tell you how, how I get. All I know is when I'm playing, if I'm recording, if I'm in a studio, and uh, it's like, no, that's not it. No, that's not it. Yes, that's it. <laughs> but I don't know exactly how I how I get there, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it's but, all um, in, in, in your, like, it's in your hands. It's coming out of your hands, you know. I mean, it's it's your it's your touch. It's your feel. It's okay, all I've got the, the best example I can ever give you that. I've, yeah, I've always had that. Not me. I mean, I've always had the thing about people, of it being in people's fingers. Years ago, I did uh, a piece of film music for this film, Hackers, and I blagged David Gilmore to come and I'd managed to get it because I'd stupidly said, oh, I can get David to play on it. <laughs> and um, then had to get him to come and play on it. And he came and it was sort of my studio at home. And, and we'd just come off the road. David wasn't up to him much. And I said, would you come and play on this sort of demo I'm doing that might be for a film, might more. And he was just like, yeah, all right. And so he came out. It was when he was playing his Red Strat. And I remember he came down the road, literally carrying, didn't have a case or anything. Literally just carrying this Red Strat in his hand. It was on the back seat of the car. 
And so I'd rented in all these amps. I go, oh, what is David like? I've got a really nice old little Fender Champ. I've got a little Vox. I've got there. I've got everything. And I came and said, okay, what do you want to play for? And then I had this Korg, you know, 90s Korg guitar effects unit that I used to use, right? And he went, oh, I'll, I'll that. I was like, really? Yeah, and he plugs in. He goes, mm, 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 mm. And it's like, fucking hell. It's, and I remember, because I had an engineer, and he was just like, you can see the hairs on the back of his neck. It's like, that's David Gilmore, right? I mean, absolutely. And he plays. You know, does about three takes of this thing and then goes, oh, can I go now? Okay, yeah, great, thanks, David. And he gets up and he leaves. And I went, right, nobody touch anything. Don't touch anything. I've got, because I've got exactly the same strat. I've got the 80, was it the 82, 62 reissue with the EMGs in it. I've got that strat. I've got his settings in there. It's like, it's all here. I've got Kimber in the box. Right, nobody move. And I very gingerly went and picked up my guitar, plugged it in. There. There, 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 there. Nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. <laughs> That's it, man. That's it. Yeah. Oh, as, as you've got some great stories about the old Dave Gilmore. In Ireland, we call him Dahi Gilmore. Dahi? Dahi is Gaelic for Dave. You know, oh, it's I used David. to be like... It's David. You can't call him Dave. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, David. David. Yeah, mm. but like Dahi is like David in Gaelic, you know? Dahi. Dahi. Oh, I, he might like that. I'll try that. Dahi, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll text you the spelling. Like, it's... um. It's very I've funny. Got, like, I've got I... an old friend, Magnus, Magnus Fines, who's a music composer. I've worked with him. He's one of my dearest friends. So I've used to work with him a lot. And he said he suddenly got plumped when he was about seven. and got plumped in, the, in a school in the middle of nowhere in Ireland. And came in the first and said, right, what's your name? He said, Magnus Fines. No, it's not. It's Manus Feeney. Next. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. It's your Dahi O'Gilmore. That's it. But yeah, no, but back to how you felt about like, uh, about how... how yeah. Burned out fell about Yeah, I feel like that about you. Like for first years Aww. I met you years ago when you were doing you know, you were doing the stand up for my base and other animals and you were in Ireland like a million years ago, we and my sister. And I still have the book that you signed. This is me being all fanboy. There it is, love. Or girl even. What did I say? To my to, darling. To my darling, I know, yeah. Fresh. Yeah, well, Clearly, mate. Yeah, so yeah, a bit forward that. Bit forward that. <laughs> I apologise. That's all right. Sorry. And then, and then. And Where, then which was that? Where was that in Ireland? That was at the. Times. It would be called the Abbey now, but back then it was called the HQ Hot Press Hall of Fame, Abbey Street, Dublin, like right off O'Connell Street, big tall building. And you were doing. Was that? There. Was it during the? Com was it the comedy festival? I I don't know if it was the comedy festival, but I dragged my sister along. So I love. No, oh, okay. And it was funny, like, cause she had like. I used to drag my sister because I didn't have a boyfriend at the time, so I just dragged my sister around to everything, and she just would just go, but she, she didn't have a boyfriend either. So we would just, but it was stuff that she wasn't interested in, and I was like, right, I'm going to this thing. It's a comedy thing. It'll be great. And then she was like, tell me more about it. I was like, I'm not going to tell her because as soon as I say the word bass guitar or bassist or ending, she'd yeah, be like, yeah, yeah. I'm not going, like, because she's zero. My dad used to say, oh, Ellen plays the bass and Linda plays the radio, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> that's so Irish. Exactly. So he, so she was like, "No, I'm not going. No, I don't know." So I didn't say anything, and I brought her, and then she saw my bass, and she was like, "For fuck's sake, what is this? What is this?" <laughs> and she was wetting herself, loving it. And then me and you went up, and I was afraid to go near you, and she just like was pushing you, and you actually gave me a hug and a kiss, uh, and I was absolutely delighted. And then, um, and then oh, I remember, well, well, I'm, I'm, okay, yeah. And then well, years very, later, well, you're a very, you're a very attractive girl. I mean, that's oh, not too much about it. Uh, <laughs> so years later. Uh, then suddenly I start doing stuff and I move to London and I'm playing at the bass show and then like 
Okay, there's all these f- famous bass players, heroes, like, No, I remember around. you doing that. I remember you being in the entrance hallway. Yeah, and at, I was doing all this chord stand. I remember. Stuff, music band at the time. And I was doing all this stuff. And no, 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 no matter who walked by, I kept playing. I just ignored them. Right, that's Yolanda. I'll just ignore it. Okay, there's Lawrence. I'll ignore him. Whatever. And then you walked by and I just stopped. And I was like, sorry about that. On the mic, uh, my favorite bass player in the world just walked by. And then you came back and you were like, you're my favorite bass player here. And I was like, literally wet myself. This is brilliant. <laughs> and, then, and then years of wetting myself around you. And now I'm like, oh, we're like mates. It's grand. <laughs> but still, it was a bit like that for a, a number of years. So wearing incontinence pants, talking to Guy Pra is Aww. now my thing. <laughs> but I was like that with David for years. You know, it took yeah. me years to, to stop. Yeah, to stop going, oh my God, it's David Gilmore. You know, and, and he'd been, you know, and he was a friend. He'd been a great friend for years. He's, you know, and he's been really really good to me as a as a proper mate and a, and yeah but it's 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 took me a long time to get past the fact yeah. that you know when you're friends with someone who was on your bedroom wall when you were a kid i don't know if i was on your bedroom wall i doubt it not in many posters no the only no, thing with being a side man you don't get to be in many posters but you see bringing your sister to my gig see that's the thing so she is what i would call the perennial girlfriend because the one mm. thing when i was doing my comedy oh, for all the reasons exactly that you just mentioned was that I, I was always aware that a lot of my audience was going to be girlfriends wives um who'd been dragged along to something and so i was very very conscious of trying to do something i, was, I tried to throw bones for the musos but mm. then stuff stuff that was funny for anyone you know that's mm. the idea so and it was because she absolutely loved it well, there you it go was, it was brilliant <laughs> yeah no i love it in the book like uh Again, my base on our animals. When you have that, you have that. Ch- it's all hilarious, right? And then you get to the chapter train sets, and it's like it's not for girls. And I was like, really? <laughs> Did I say that's actually terribly sexist of me? I'm only um, messing. I'm only messing. But actually, but it's true. Let's be honest. You know, it's mainly. Yeah, it is. It, like yeah. it is. It's like eighty percent lads and and you know talking about the winding of a pickup. And I'm like, I love playing bass, obviously, but I can't. I, I, I getting down to the nitty gritty about like. The 1973 wound, this one was no, wound I, in I, March. And I, used to, I spent years thinking you needed to know all that stuff and realised I was actually pretending to be interested. I was actually pretending, I mean, I've got this great big super posh pedal board and I love it and I love having my big posh. But again, all of them, it's just like I get down and go, that, 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 yeah, there it is, that works. And I don't, you know, I, I'm, the great thing about getting older is you don't have to pretend to be interested in things you're not, I, you know. It was like there's a very funny thing when could because when i started um i was always re- i was reading every book i could about music and musicians and everything and and like les paul and people and and there was always this thing that there's that, that um like the thing about les paul and various engineers the thing was like they got a tape recorder and the first thing they did was take it apart right but that was obviously because they had some sort of technical inherent knowledge that they would use to then explore this tape recorder and turn it into something else so then i had some sort of um this uncle, it's a great uncle, died, and I got left a tape recorder. So the first thing I did was took it apart. But I have no inherent technical knowledge. All I had was a tape recorder in bits that was never going back together again. So all I did was break a perfectly good tape recorder. Now I can't. I listen, I'm scared. I'm still scared shitless of of adjusting a truss rod. I have no idea. And you know, I tried it on my Spectre and nearly broke the fucking thing I, I i'm terrified of anything like that i can change i still I, I still after all these years i still when i change my strings i still get the length wrong when i clip it 
So it's always just too short to loop it round and just too long so that you get two or three wines on it. You'd think I'd know. I mean, admittedly, it's, it's quite a lot of different bases, so they're all different necks, but you'd think I'd know by now that the E string needs to be clipped here and the A string needs to be clipped there, but I don't. In the same way as I still can't pack, I still can't, you know, every, every, I mean, I've spent my life living out of suitcases and I love it and I'm so fastidious about it. I mean, I spent weeks organizing my toilet bag, right? My wash bag is, is every, but I still don't know what to take. Do <laughs> you think I would, and I, it just doesn't go in. Every time you get something, I go, oh yeah, no, I shouldn't have brought that, should have brought that, really should have brought that, really shouldn't have brought that. Yeah. And, and, and the next time I go out on tour, it'll be the same. I'll get to the first hotel, yeah, I shouldn't have brought that, really should have brought that. So there you go. There are some things you just never learn. <laughs> yeah, you got you got to roll it into little balls apparently. But I'm the same. I'm like, why do I, I never wear this normally? Why would I bring this here? But that used to be the thing. But it's that because I'm away, I'm going to wear it. That's the thing. Yeah. I, I, I've got I've I've actually still got sort of beloved items of clothing, which which have which basically live in my wardrobe or my suitcase. Never wear them. But it's always in my wardrobe, and I always go, no, I'll take that because I'll wear it. So it just goes from the wardrobe to the suitcase and then stays in the suitcase and then goes back to the wardrobe and then goes back into the suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> so th those five years between like Ice House and, and Pink Floyd and you were just powering through all these amazing artists. What, so after Robert Palmer and, and all that, what, what, who, who was next? Before Robert, I was Brian Ferry. Brian Ferry, that was, Brian which, Ferry. Was, um, which was, that was just heavenly. Especially because Brian had just put out uh, Boys and Girls. He just had Slave to Love. And he was, you know, he was so cool at the time so cool and so hip and so just every and everything about him was just every he was uh, and so i got the gig playing with him and what was fantastic was because i got nick because rhett davis his producer because brian ferry albums take for i mean you know they sound it right you you can hear they take years of intense but, but and they do sound like it but the thing is the way brian was working at that time was that every time he had an idea you know, he'd fly to New York, book the power station, get Marcus Miller and kind of, you know, Ndugu Chancellor or, you know, whatever, or Andy Newmark. And, you know, and the record company are going, this, this, is, we could, this is just unsustainable. And, and so Rhett's thing was he just thought he wanted Brian to have a little London team. So he could just, they had their cheap little studio in Chelsea, the record company owned. And uh, so they found Chester Kamen, this guitarist, and then myself. And they put the two of us together and we were just left in this studio. And Brian would come in and out and, and then the rest of the time it was just us messing about with all this amazing equipment and everything. And it was just heaven, you know, and I adore Chester and still do. And, um, and so, yeah, and, and then suddenly all these incredible people coming in and out. That's how I got to know David Gilmore because David used to come in and out. And then Johnny Marr turned up and, you know, it was, it was just fantastic. And then we moved into Air Studios and it was, and the funny thing was, it, it, I stopped work, and then, oh yeah, and then, the funny thing is, then um, the problem that Brian had was, he, you know, he really, really wanted a hit in America and he'd never had hits in America because American songs need big choruses and Brian Ferry songs don't have big choruses. So they think, okay, so Madonna has just had her biggest album. She's just put True Blue out. Right, co-written and produced by Pat Leonard. So it's like, let's get Pat Leonard in. Pat was doing the same sort of thing as me and, and Johnny Marr. They're all of us who were just going, whoa, yeah, come on, give me, give me, give me. You know, Johnny was bouncing off the walls, just playing guitar for everyone on the back of the Smiths. And then Pat was just writing and recording with everyone. 
he could so it's like Brian Ferry yeah Brian Ferry I'll do that so so they start working together then and so uh, that's how I met Pat Leonard and you know and, and he liked the look of me and so then I ended up going and doing all the Madonna stuff and toy that and everything with him after so you know it's everything was leading to and, and none of it was ever planned you could never see you know, you never knew. I'd, I'd walk into the studio that day and that's the day that Pat Leonard turns up and then that's going to change my life for the next 10 years, you know. Amazing. So, yeah. So that, I mean, that was... Because the funny thing was, was I'd stopped working on it. It moved on to another phase. Like, they'd done all the recording and everything. And I don't know what Brian was doing. He was then fiddling about for ages. So I then... Then, and then months went past. And then I went off and did the Pink Floyd thing. And I remember being halfway through the Pink Floyd tour. I remember exactly where I was. I was in St. Louis. I remember walking into a record shop and there was Bet Noir by Brian Ferry. I was like, what? He finished it. And it never occurred to me that Brian would actually finish this album. I thought, no, no, no. I thought what happened was that I go off on tour with Pink Floyd for a year, come back and then go back and carry on working on Brian's sort of eternal album. And it was, <laughs> and it was finished. And what was really, really annoying was that the musicians were just listed in alphabetical order. Not, not who played on what song, or whoever. So someone who came in for an afternoon and did duck call got exactly the same, you know, prominence as me who'd spent a year and a half slogging away at it. So that was slightly <laughs> annoying. Right. Like a prayer, we've got to talk about it, right? Because that's right. like your quintessential song. Oh, do you know well, what? It, yes, go on. No, no, go on. Phrase your, phrase your say, right? Well, to be honest with you, like, whenever people have asked, like, what is your favourite pop song of all time? If you had to pick one, I would always say like a prayer it's just a perfect pop song isn't it like no it is it, i mean it's yeah and i had no idea at the time and yeah it is uh, and i'm prouder to be on that than probably anything i've ever done because it is it's it is it's one of the most important records of the last of you know of the history of pop music for so many mm -hmm. reasons and um and I, funny enough because uh I, I looked up the wikipedia entry uh, on Like a Prayer last night. And there's quite a lot of stuff involving me in it. And what's funny is, there's someone's clearly read an interview with me at some point, and it's just gone through this insane Chinese whisper shredders. When it, and it's just all this nonsense, which is, there's no relation to what actually happened. Um, and it's really weird. And it, it implies I have a completely different relationship with Madonna that I had, also, you know. But I'm very oh, happy tell to us. tell you the straight story. Well, what was it? Oh, meant? It, was, it was right at the end uh, of the Floyd tour. And I mean, I was burnt out by then. I, was burnt, I basically should have gone straight to rehab at the end, you know, or, or on holiday at least. I didn't even do that. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and that tour was so long. I'd been living in this insane bubble. And the idea of, you know, what the hell do you go back to after that? Um, mm. And we were playing, I think it was in Washington, D.C., one of the last shows... And Pat Leonard came to the gig and he said, what are you doing after this tour? I said, I've got no idea. And he said, do you fancy playing on the Madonna record? I was like, fuck, yes, God, yes. <laughs> I was like, wow, I, I know, I never, wow. Because you know, whenever I got things like that, with Brian, I, I always thought these things were just little flukes. And, you know, the, the, the idea that it's like you go from Pink Floyd to Madonna, it's kind of like, no, you live here. It's like, I don't live there, surely. Um, <laughs> And then, so I get back home, and, and then, amazing, th then Pat calls me up and says, who do you want to play drums? What? It's like, I literally get to pick my drummer on the fucking Madonna record? It's like, this is nuts. And I immediately, so the guy I was in love with at the time was David Palmer. 
Because before the Floyd thing, I was going to start a band with Johnny Marr and David Palmer. Three of us were going to start a band. They ended up playing together in the The. Um, so I, I said, well, I'm David Palmer. So I went, okay. I said, fuck, this is insane. So, so David's going to come out and play drums, which is great because that makes me feel comfortable. I've got my guy on board. Um, and then, but then like a week before we're meant to be going out, David cancels. I think because he had the The gig or something. And it was like, what? So apparently in the studio, Madonna loses her shit. Goes, why the fuck are we getting this guy? I didn't want him. You know, it's only because you want him. And if he can't even fucking pick a drummer, why the and And, um, and, and, and so I'm, I'm fired. That's it. I've lost again. Pat calls me up and he's going, listen, guy, I'm really sorry. I'm, I think I could do. I talked about, you know, what can I do? I was going, no, Pat, Pat, listen. And, and <laughs> I was saying, Pat, no, you, you've got to get me this gig. I mean, it's not because of the actual gig or the importance or the significance or the, cachet or anything like that it's just that like i've told everyone <laughs> <laughs> and then sure enough the next night i'm in bed it's about four o'clock in the morning and the phone goes i pick it up and this voice at the end goes i hear you're funny make me laugh <laughs> and it was madonna and i can't remember what i said uh but then but then i got the gig apparently uh i, I heard later from pat that thing that, that she was out for a walk in malibu and bumped into nick Kamen. Uh, who, of course, is Chester Kamen's brother. And she said, I'm, there's this fucking bass player, Guy Pratt. Have you heard of him? He went, yeah, I know Guy. Yeah, Guy's great. He's fantastic. He's a lovely guy. Yeah, he's brilliant. And so I think maybe Nick Kamen saved my ass on that. Uh -huh. So, yeah. So then I get, um, so, yeah, then I went out to do the album. And, uh, <coughs> oh, yeah, there's a, in the Wikipedia entry, it says, Madonna would often summon Guy to the studio for his opinion and then dismiss him. It was like, no, there was, a, the thing is, the first day I got there, I was summoned to the studio and she just went, oh, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. And was a bit catty. And then I left. But it's like, that's, you know, th that's all. I wasn't, um, and the first few, uh, Like a Prayer, I think, was the last thing we did. Because I, you know, I played on, um, and all the other stuff was just banned in a room, right? Which was amazing. It's Sugarfoot Moffat on drums, uh, Bruce Gage on guitar, wonderful guitar player. <laughs> Uh, Jay Winding and Pat Leonard playing keyboards uh, and me and we all sat there and we all had our charts and Madonna would sing, stand in the control room and she'd do a guide vocal as we played and she would give everyone notes straight away and they'd all be fucking perfect spot on you know she was um, amazing like that like really really impressive um, you also had to be really cheeky to her because she would slap you down and so you had and something I realised because she had all these musicians were going yes man no man so you had to I mean, Chester got on really well. Because, Ch yeah, Chester Kamen was, was brought out as well. That guitar at the very, very beginning of Like a Prayer, which Evan says is Prince, that's Chester, by the way. Um, and uh, he bought her a whip as a present. But she probably appreciated that. Like, she probably appreciated, all right, uh, they can handle me we can actually have a bit of bad no but that's it, exactly that's i think yeah but I, I i think that might have been part of um of of what of pat's sort of producer psychology that rather than just having the super hot la players was that it, it was you know a bit of english cheekiness would wouldn't go amiss you know S mm. the slight sort of punky thing that we bring because we're just not those guys we didn't go to berkeley we didn't you know we didn't grow up like them so mm. um but yes, but the actual song, I mean, like I said, the, the thing is, 
I I know it was it was just me and Madonna in the studio. Uh, uh, it, it was they'd done the track because the, you know there's that synth bass that does it. So they'd recorded the track. I don't remember being there for when they recorded the track. I might be. I don't. But it's really weird. I have, don't quite remember. I do remember being there for an afternoon, and I'm sure I was just messing about. When when we did the middle bit, I'm sure I was just messing about, and it's just like yeah, right, as if as if they'd use that, you know, and forgot yeah. about it. And be, I was so convinced they wouldn't use it. I think I literally, I'm sure I thought at the time, you know, Pat was like, I've got this crazy idea. Why don't we just get guy and let, let him go nuts? And I was like, yeah, sure, fine, whatever. And and I'm sure it was just like because there were probably other times we did that. I'm sure, there's other things where it's just like let's just let guy go nuts, and they went nah, it didn't work. And so I was just assuming this was one of those, you know. And like I said, <laughs> it wasn't until. I came back months later to do to start Toy Matinee, the other project I'm incredibly proud of, which is the other the thing I did with Pat Leonard. Um, and Madonna heard I was in town and invited me to the mix, which I was amazed. So and she invited me to this other studio, and I went, it was literally come sit here, guy. Went, went and sat next to her on the on the sofa, and and they were just they just finished the mix, so they just did this one really loud playback of like a prayer, and I was like, holy fuck. Um, and, and, and it was that thing of, of it's like, that, that sounds like me. Sounds like, but it can't be. It's like, because I, you know, Pino gets to do that. Tony Levin gets to do that. I don't get to do that. Do you know what I mean? I'm not allowed. That's a way above my pay grade. I don't get allowed to do that shit. And so and I thought, well, it sounds like me. I've, but, you know, I guess they got, you know, someone else in, Tony or someone. And, um, and at the end, so I said quite genuinely, absolutely genuinely, I said, I said, that is the best thing I've ever heard of yours. It's, I'm the thing, it's one of the best pop records I've ever heard. And that bass at the end, in the middle, is insane. Who did that? Mm. Went, you dummy! <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that was, was lovely was I loved when, was when it came out, was how all the people, um, I, I think what kind of probably meant the most to me than anything was, was I was still in LA when it came out. And, um, and David, David Gilmore called me up and said, I just heard you on the radio. I went, oh, you knew that was me? He went, of course it's you. And I was like, yeah, come on. Yeah. That was really nice. Yeah, man, the signature, <laughs> the signature Pratt sound. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I always say, I, it's not, I mean, it's, I feel a bit unfair that being a signature sound. It's actually not, it's not, I'm not really the same, but, but I always say that I basically stalt, stalt, got my whole 80s shtick from Tear Your Playhouse Down by Pino. That's where I got the idea for the octave pedal. But, um, oh, right. Yeah, it's still. Is it know, true that she used to? Is it true that she used to like flash you guys in the control room? She did once. <laughs> she did, yeah, but she did actually have a bra on. Yeah, she yeah, it was like because Sugarfoot was going. You know, Where do we come in for this? You, you come in when I do this. <laughs> and he went. Yeah, I still don't know when we come in. <laughs> <laughs> so she sounds like she's a bit of crack. Like a hard she was. Or a bit of she crack. was. She really was. She was great. For, although she was going through. You know, she was going through a lot of the time. She was, you know, marriage was falling apart and everything. And so there was a thing. She took me out one night. She took me to uh, to see George Michael at the Faith gig, you know. And this was George Michael at the height of his powers. We walked in the back, arm in arm. Not one fucking photographer. Um, oh. I know, heartbreak. But there was one incredibly poignant, uh, and this is actually quite timely, because now with It's a Sin being out and everything, uh, which I haven't watched yet. So maybe a bit. But um, I said to her in the, in, in the limo, What's it, I mean, how, how are you finding living in LA? You strike me as such a New York person, you know, because she's such a now, you know, she's very, mm. she is, she's an inherently New York, she was then, um, person. She said, I hate it, but I can't live in New York. I said, why? She said, because all my friends are dead. 
Oh fuck! And, and it's which is and you forget because of course all her friends were dancers, AIDS. and AIDS mm. just fucking you know forget how it was awful that was. Yeah. And yeah, that was really very very touching. Oh man, um, so after uh, Madonna, like what what led then to the infamous Michael Jackson sesh? He heard like a prayer. I mean, I was uh, okay. So again, things were still pretty nuts right i did the madonna record i then i remember by that time before in the that i kept flying backwards and forwards to la uh i did an album for an old bandmate of mine andy kunter from ice house and then there was another couple of things with pat then i did the toy Matt a project uh the band which pat said which was with pat and kevin gilbert tim pierce and brian mcleod which actually then went on to give birth to cheryl crow the Tuesday Night Music Club came out of Toy Matinee. If you don't know the Toy Matinee album, you should check it out. It's the best bass playing I've ever done. And right, in America, all, all, I get so much kudos from American musicians, more than anything I've done. It's like, it's my Velvet Underground album. Only 300 people bought it, but they all started a band. I mean, when I met the guys who worked with Dre and the guys from Beck's band, they're all just like, whoa, Guy Pratt, Toy Matinee, fucking A, man. Um, whereas in England, no one knows it at all. But um, well, you should see on my lockdown licks, I do a few of the songs. And that, it's the best bass playing I've ever done. Um, I'll check it out. But that's with sure. Pat, yeah. So I did that, the Toy Matinee album, and then, and then it was straight back out with Pink Floyd for the European tour when we did the Venice show and went to Russia, uh, which was nuts. Mm. And then I came straight back to L.A. Again, you know, should, without going to, for a holiday or rehab, um, <laughs> to do the Robbie Robertson album. <laughs> what the fuck? And that really was, you know, that really is like, it's, and I'm still going, I don't live here. I don't live here. How, you know, my imposter syndrome was through the roof. And that was two, three months. And that was, and it was while I was doing that, um, I, I, I remember, um, because Bill Bottrell, who engineered all the Madonna stuff and then produced the Toy Matinee album, was producing Michael Jackson at that point. And Michael heard Like a Prayer and loved the bass and said, I'd really like that on my next record. So, and he said, well, this guy, he's in town. I'll get him down. And it was just probably the coolest phone call. And he called me. I was at Village Recorders and I literally had to say, well, let me see. So I had to turn to Robbie Robinson and go, Robbie, is it if I okay, okay if I leave early this evening because I've got a Michael Jackson session? And Robbie was just like, what am I supposed to say to that? <laughs> so, yeah, that's how that came about. <clears throat> Yeah, now that is a hilarious story in itself there. That, that is a hilarious story in itself, yes. Oh, God, God. <laughs> Do I have to tell <laughs> it again? Go on, guy. Oh. All right, so I, I kept going to the studio and it'd be like, and Michael's never there. Michael had always just left. And uh, Bill would go, well, listen, Michael liked that. He didn't like that. One of you could try this. Da, da, da. I'd go, all right, come back tomorrow. Michael will be here. So I come back the next day. Michael's just left. He's always just left. He liked this, didn't like that. So eventually I went, look, Bill. If Michael could be here, tell me what he wants. I'll do it. We can all go home, right? He goes, yeah, no, I, I know, guy. It's frustrating, I know. But I can sign it off without him. And, you know. So the next day I get a call at the studio. Guys, it's Bill. I'm the Michael's here. He's not leaving. I rush down the studio. And Michael's just left. But it's weird. There's a slightly, there's this weird, different vibe in the studio. There's this new engineer. And I say engineer in inverted commas because this guy was a giant Samoan bloke. Someone who'd be better suited to being, oh, I don't know, a bodyguard, perhaps. <coughs> and he's down one end of the mixing desk. And he won't let me get down. I'm trying to get an ashtray or something. You could smoke in the studio, is it? I'm trying to get an ashtray or something. This guy's blocking my way. I'm like, all right, all right. So I start playing. And then this guy leans over.
Yeah, I think Michael will find that appropriate. Okay, that's odd. So this bloke has the most tenuous grasp of the English language, but an absolutely intrinsic understanding of what Michael Jackson requires from a bass performance. <coughs> I think that's odd. All right, all right, hang on a minute. Someone is hiding behind the mixing desk telling this guy what to tell me. <laughs> Michael Jackson is hiding behind the mixing desk telling this guy what to tell me. All right, and this is fucking nuts. So I look around and Bill is literally just going, don't look at me, don't look at me, don't look at me. Everyone in the room knows, but you know, no one can do anything. So um, uh, I'm not gonna bother doing the gag. The gag I usually do is I play, work, I play the theme from Workers Playtime, because I just try to think what was the most absurd thing I could possibly play. Um, but then the funny thing about that is, uh, and again, then that, that song didn't come out on his next album, it didn't come out for like another three or four years. So I'd completely forgotten about it. And, I, and it was funny, because I, I didn't get paid for it. I was actually working illegally, so there's nothing I could do about it. But when it became a hit, I actually quite liked that, because, of course, this is at the time when Michael Jackson was literally the biggest pop star in the world, right? You could be anywhere on earth, and Michael Jackson would come up in conversation, right? You could be talking to Maasai tribesmen in Kenya, and Michael Jackson could quite easily come up in the conversation. And it was actually really nice to be able to go, yeah, can't owes me money. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. That's a brilliant story. Fantastic baseline. <coughs> it's brilliant. Uh, yeah, I know it's funny. I, I was never quite sure. I, again, it sounds to me, I mean, it's clearly what it, I think the way I described it when I did Lockdown Licks is it's, because to me it always sounds like I just hear this kind of punk rock imposter saying, but it's a bit like, it's a bit like some fabulous, I mean, because when you listen, especially on headphones, it's billion dollar production. I mean, it is so perfect. You know, the sound is incredible. And then suddenly, especially actually when I was working, I realized how low it is. It's A flat, man. You do not want to play A flat on an octave pedal, the bottom line. How I got away with it. I was willing that OC2 to track. Come on, stay with it. That's why you can always hear the relief in my voice when, when, it, go, when it changes key to B-flat. Ah, oh, something <laughs> slightly better. Um, but yeah, but I, I think the way I look at that bass line now is that it's like there's some beautiful swanky party, drinks party, reception thing, at the biggest, poshest hotel in the world, you know, and it's, it's just gorgeous and swanky. But it's, a, it's, it's in danger of getting a bit boring. And then suddenly, like, Ollie Reed or Keith Moon comes crashing through the door and they're pissed and they're, like, being a nightmare, but they're exactly what the party needs. <laughs> that's kind of that's how I think of that. That is a, that is a brilliant description of it because, it, yeah, it does have that vibe because it is all very loud. Look yeah, at the yeah, trees. Yeah, yeah. And, and suddenly they're like, right, <laughs> what's going on? A bit of badass factor comes in and it's yeah. like, yeah. I know, because again, it's one of those things where I was clearly terror, and 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 it was like you know, if it was like a prayer that got me in there, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, it's kind of good. It's a, you know, loads of doom, and then you're confronted with that. It's like <laughs> I don't know, and I, you know, so I, and so I can't remember how quickly I came up with that, and I also don't know how much Bill had to do with the input of that. Because um, it's really, I mean, it is actually quite risky what I did, really. I mean, it's so simple. I mean, it's, it's smoke on the water, practically, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but that's what makes a badass. Yeah. It's got, it's got, it's got riff vibes, like rock riff vibes. Yeah, yeah. 
But no, but so, and, and I, I also no, because I really appreciate it because lots of people who, I, who don't know I played it who said, and it t- tends to be real musos who go baseline on that record. You know, it's really not. I mean, it's, yeah, it's that. It's that th- there's times where you play something you think is really good and and you like it, whatever. And there's times you play something that's that's really right, whether you know it or not. You know, and that clearly mm. is really right because it's it's really sticks with people. Everyone. It's one, you know, there are some songs, song, because I, I, I know that if you mention that song to people, you know, because people always have to have a monophonic thing they can remember from a song. You know, when you want to sing something, you've got to know something monophonic. And if you mention that, what about something? And people go, oh yeah, dum, dum, dum. So, you know, so it's, so that, Yeah, I it like makes that. the song. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so what Thank was you. it like then getting the Floyd gig? Like, how did that uh, <laughs> transpire? Oh, I know, people say, oh, it's all right. I um, <laughs> well, that was, uh, that well because I, I knew David mainly through Dream Academy from uh, I say I knew them we supported him on his solo tour in Birmingham and Nick Laird Clues who's the most incredibly enthusiastic person was guy you've got David loves your play you can't wait to which translates as he probably heard something and said oh, my bass is alright and um, and so we went up and, and he said David's dying to meet you he can't wait to meet you it's fantastic he thinks you're great and, and I'm, which of course is the last thing I need to hear so I'm like oh god. And I get introduced to David in the dressing room backstage at the Birmingham Odeon. And we just both stand, because David's really not the most talkative person in the world at the best of times. And, uh, and we both just stand there until it's so awful, one of us has to walk away. And uh, oh. being the ranking officer, David got to do that. He literally just turned and walked off. It was just, I just couldn't think of anything. And then the next time I met him was we were both in the video for uh, Is Your Love Strong Enough, the Brian Ferry song. And, we, and it was quite funny because this is when David wasn't really doing much and more to the point. So Phil Taylor, his guitar tech, was terrible. He was always looking for things to do. So even though we're both just miming in this video, we're at some film studio in Fulham. And so, of course, Phil has brought down 30 guitars for David. So like when you're sitting in the dressing room, you have to wade through this forest of 30 guitars, all of which are absolutely priceless, you know, just to sit down. And I'm sat there and there's David sat opposite me and he's noodling on this sort of white strat that's not plugged in and I'm sitting there going oh god you've got to fucking say something at some point and so I went uh, that's a nice looking strat David is it very old and he just went there aren't any older than this flipped it over there's the nameplate 0001 it's like oh for fuck's sake <laughs> whoa so um, yeah, so I'd always had disastrous encounters but apparently he really liked he clearly liked the cut of my jib because so I then went on holiday t- to Thailand and this was back in the days of answer phones. While I was away, David was doing this Amnesty International, you know, Secret Policeman's Ball gig with Kate Bush and wanted me to play with it. And he left me all his messages. So I get back from this holiday and there's all these messages from David saying, do you want to come do this gig? And then eventually, oh, all right, we're clearly not there. And I got like, no, no, I missed, no. Like that was my one fucking chance to ever play with David Gilmore and Kate Bush. <laughs> and I've blown it, you know, blown it. And, uh, but then funny enough, then literally, and I kept, started bumping into him at parties and stuff. And then about two, three, then I saw this thing in Q magazine, which was a new magazine at that time, about them getting back together and going out on the road. And I thought, oh, wow, that'll be something. And then thought no more of it. And the next thing I know, David calls me up and just says, hi, guys, it's David. He was in LA at the time. And it, brilliant, classic David, right? And this has never stopped. He's, he's always been able to bait me really easily, and he, which he does fantastically and 
And she said, Guy, uh, yeah, look, two questions for you. Uh, I don't know if you, we're, we're getting Floyd back together. I said, oh, yeah, you know, I saw something about that. He said, yeah, we're going on tour for a year. Uh, so two questions, really. Are you interested and are you available? I went, oh, I could possibly muster some interest. And uh, yeah, I'm available. It went, oh, not working then. <laughs> no, I, well, obviously I'd have to move things around, and um, you know, <laughs> literally, he's it started with a fucking dig, and it's never changed. Oh, that's brilliant. So, what was it like going into like rehearsals with the legend, the legendary band? You know, it was a nightmare um, because the start because David <laughs> wasn't even there for the first week or so, and I was really intimidated because there was like Tim Rennick and Gary Wallace, and they they were from this very different. Tim, I knew I had some history with, and I loved Tim. And there's Gary Wallace, who's from the super music world. And, and so I had that terrible thing where, because everyone was like into, into their fusion and yellow jackets and stuff like that. And, so, and I thought that was who you were meant to be. I thought you, and whereas, in fact, I, you know, that's actually not what you need to play with Pink Floyd at all. And it was, and um, actually, where I come from is exactly who you need to be to play Pink Floyd, frankly. But I thought I was very intimidated by them because I wasn't this muso, you know. Um, although there was John, who was very much a, I, I, John Karen, who was very much a like mind at the time, and uh, but it was just a, it was just a mess. It was just a sort of mess. No one really knew the stuff, and um, and you know Nick certainly wasn't really interested in being about it. Nick was doing any, anything to be involved in the logistics rather than sitting behind the drums. He was always kind of putting it off. And we had this joke about it, it would literally be. Uh, You'd have runners everywhere going, hi, listen, I'm just going to the music shop. Uh, does anyone need anything? People go, oh, yeah, actually, I could do some batteries. I could do this. And Nick would always go, uh, are you going to the stationers at all? He <laughs> was like, I could do some folders. <laughs> uh, and then David turned up. And, then, and again, he wasn't really that interested in being a band leader. And, and this thing was huge. You know, it was huge undertaking. And then luckily, uh, Bob Ezrin, was brought in to produce, to kind of pull, and he pulled everything together. Because Bob's a very fantastically theatrical character, and he's lots of shouting and pointing, and, you know, and it was, and it was brilliant. I felt very at home with him, because he was, you know, because I'm quite a theatrical type, you know. And mm -hmm. um, the scariest bit was, at one point, I remember he stopped song and said, okay, if at any point, if anyone's ever lost, if you're confused or lost, look at Guy. Guy always knows what's going on. I'm like, what? <laughs> no, I'm, no, 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 not me. <laughs> but yeah off it went and you know um and and you know evolved into i mean an amazing show well it's funny now paul the 94 tour is a much better i think much better document is a much better band because it wasn't as much fun the 87 mm. 89 stuff was so much fun and it was um we were all being way too 80s but now i think about it actually wasn't just us being 80s, actually, everyone was, you know, it was the 80s. And so, you know, David was being 80s, every, every, you know, everything about it was 80s. So I'm, I'm bored of carrying the can for that. I, so I did a bit of slapping. That was my contribution to the 80s-ness of it. But everyone was being fucking 80s. You know? and it, well, the funny thing is, and for years, I was so embarrassed about my bass solo and money. And then, of course, but now it's been cut from the, from the later years box set. And obviously, I'm incandescent with rage at that. Oh. I know. Controversy. That's awful. A, I, well, I can kind of see why David did, but it's a bit silly because, like, yes, it is too long and it's a bit, but it's like, but you know what? If the, it's either it's a document of what happened or it isn't, make your mind mm. up. You know, I don't think yeah. anyone's going to not listen to it, but any, you know, it doesn't, but I'd, whatever. I, I well, just don't really care on that YouTube, much. Is it? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because um, uh, it's well, the the bass solo that everyone likes to learn is the Venice one. Mm. Uh, which uh, when I did my lockdown licks, I looked at that and I like, I can't be bothered. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting because we've been on the road. You know, we'd done the thirteen month tour, had the break, and then we've been on the road for another two months then. And so, and it's that wonderful thing when you've been on tour that long, where you're you haven't done any practice or any thinking about it, but you're just you know your chops are just there you know it's brilliant mm. i mean it's really funny it, it's like kind of if this is the level of your playing you just automatically go up to here and then you come mm. home and you go back down to there you know and it's nothing to do with practice it's not it, well it is i mean if you played if you played for three hours every day then obviously that's where you'd be but i don't do that uh, yeah so i've liked doing my lockdown licks thing because that's really been what's been really been fun for me is is what's interesting is everything from about um uh, from like 87 from my Pink Floyd period onwards anything I've had learned it, it's been really fun because you pick up the bass go oh that guy oh yeah yeah that guy I remember that guy yeah that guy he's alright yeah I know that guy uh, but then <laughs> anything before that like when I've done Ice House songs and it's just like oh this guy <laughs> who's this guy it's like oh well he's the guy who's trying to figure out how to become that guy and it's really nice and it's, re it's like having a conversation with the younger you because, you, you know, mm. it's like, oh, this is what you did. It's like, of course, I wouldn't do that now because I'm not him. That's actually a really nice, it's a really nice way of communicating with your younger self, if you know what I mean, rather than traumatic therapy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're primarily self-taught then, right? So, like... Yeah. Did you ever learn to read or any do, do any studying? No, I didn't. And the thing, you know what, now, I, I mean, for instance, why didn't I during lockdown? Why the fuck didn't I learn to read? It's because it used to be a badge of honour. It used to be this real person. Yeah, I don't, I don't need any of that. And now we get here and it's just lazy. Because especially when occasionally there's, you know, quite complicated things that I want to learn. And, and I have to work it out. But I think if you could read this, it'll take you a second. Um, but there's something about, I, I'm now just too set in my, same way, you know, it's like learning chess. I really should learn chess. But um, yeah, I, but the funny thing is I can't remember how I learnt. I can't remember what I did to teach myself the bass. I know I just played all the time and everyone I was at school with, you know, everyone says, we remember you, man. You just, you just played the bass all the time. It's all you did. You were playing bass. But I don't know what I was playing because I, I got this weird thing into my head, right? Really stupid that um, I didn't want to learn other people's bass lines because if mm -hmm. I figured that, if I did that, then I'd just sound like other people. Which is really, it's just like, well, it just means you don't have to fucking play anything, you idiot. Um, <laughs> so I don't know what it, so I basically was just making up bass lines. And then, and then, and then one day I figured out, I just went, and I, I remember the first time I slapped, because it's like all these amazing musicians did. And I remember the first time I slapped, I remember thinking, is it that easy? I remember thinking, surely it's got to be more difficult. Like, surely I can't do that. It can't be, I mean, I was ne I've never been great at it, but it, but, um, and then, and, you know, you just pick things up. And, and, and I mean, my real lessons were, I, I had this great, I moved into a house in Queen's Park with a really dear friend of mine, this guy called Andrew Crawford, who sadly took his own life years later. And he was this fantastic kind of jazz funk pianist. And we used to smoke a lot of weed. And we had this lovely big front room overlooking the park with a grand piano in it. And I had this tiny little box drum machine that would little amp. And we would just get stoned and just play and write these sort of jazz funk and reggae tunes and just play all day, every day. And that was sort of my conservatory, really. That's where I learned, you know, and it was just, and I, you know, I literally just, I just messed about. But I messed about for eight, nine hours every day. And, and then I started learning disco stuff because that was, you know, one day I went, hang on, this is, <laughs> this is amazing.
In fact, no, it was, um, it was one, I worked at this clothes shop on, uh, called Risk. It was a really cool second-hand clothes shop on Portobello Road. And JC from the members was working there part-time as well. And one day he gave me I Should Have Loved You by Narada Michael Walden. Said, you learn to play bass like that and I'll start a band with you. And so mm -hmm. I thought, all right. And I went home and I learned that bass line. And um, he did actually start a band. That's how we started The Children of Seven. But it was like, that was, that was one of the first times I just sat down to learn a line. It was just like, oh my God, this is incredible. You know, mm. so. But what about like theory, like, like arpeggios, scales and all that? Did that come later? Was that you picked yeah, that up? Yeah, okay, like, no, I've never really done, I've never really done scale practice. That's why, I mean, uh, I can get from one end of the net to the other, but I don't really know how. I don't do, pro I notice that, that when I'm paying attention, I notice that I, my fingering is, re is, is like, I use all of my fingers. But when I'm in a live situation, I know whenever I'm, do if I'm doing any sort of solos or any mad stuff, it's literally just first, second, third. I, know, I notice I'm really lazy. I just, I, I, it tends to be just first and third fingers, you know, I, all my theory stuff goes out the window. <laughs> but I mean, I, so I don't really have theories, but I, I do it because I, you know, I love the, the, what makes bass play. Actually, you know, where I learned most of, or got an understanding of, of sort of theory was actually from listening to Led Zeppelin more than anything. Because mm. John Paul Jones's sense of, you know, he, he's playing harmony a lot of the time. And it was, and that's why I learned from him that thing of you can really strengthen the roots of a piece by not playing them, you know, mm. by playing, you know, don't be afraid of thirds yeah. and nines and stuff. Oh yeah. There's, there's another one of my heroes, JPJ, JPJ. Same what birthday. Same birthday. No way. Yeah. Have you ever met him? I have. I, um, I met him once uh, backstage at the Albert Hall, which didn't go very well because it was when I was working with Jimmy Page and he wasn't very happy about that. Uh, but then, funny enough, I was at a, I did my stand up in Ireland at a literary festival uh, a couple of years back. Um, I can't remember what it was called. Brilliant little festival. Margaret Atwood was there, um, and John Paul Jones was there talking about his new opera. And I got to hang with him a bit there. In fact, we jammed with a load of Irish musicians one night in the beer tent, which was great. And he got the mandolin out. He got the, and it's like, oh my god! It, 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 it literally just was that. It was that. It was, um, you know, what's the song? Battle Forevermore. It was literally it sounded like that. Um, and and he's, you know, charming, delightful man. What would be your advice for for bass players these days, like if they want to do well in the industry? I can't give any professional advice because I don't really no because I don't know what what how the music business works anymore and it's um you know i don't and I, for instance like the career i had doesn't exist i just mm. i just don't think it really exists i mean there's lots of playing gigs there's certainly lots of live work and stuff mm. um and the thing is you know what i would say is that it is i heard i mean because i just had this terrible thing of i didn't realize that when you're hired as a musician your job is to be a professional and sort of perform to the best of your abilities and sort of you know follow those whereas i always thought i'd just been asked to join a gang <laughs> it's not like I showed up, got the gig right. Then we're all just mates and having a laugh, you know. And and um, but I do, and I think you know, which which worked for me, but I, I'm not necessarily going to work for everyone. Uh, but the thing is, and I do think today people can err a bit too far the other way, can be a mm. bit too grown up and professional, and and bit so boring. My message to anyone would be, yeah, my message to them was, yes, always be professional, and everything, but also remember it's art. Mm. You know, remember it is art. Remember, you you know, you need to be, you're, you're a creative person. Yeah. I've noticed that actually, like in, in, in some of the, um, you know, musical institutes that are around, I remember when I went to do my degree, I, I, 
because I like I was just I want to be a session player like my heroes you John Paul Jones da 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 right mm-hmm. and like I was like so I went to this place and and I always thought in my mind well those session players are getting chosen because of how they play they sound like them Tony Levin sounds like Tony Levin Pino sounds like Pino you sound like you right that that's so who, where's my voice kind of thing you know what I mean obviously your influences come out in you right but yeah still going to be you right but in these institutes I kind of find that they trying to they try to wring that out of you I noticed I remember like being in classes like right you have to sound like Marcus Miller this week and I'm like well I'm not ever going to sound exactly like Marcus Miller because I'm a little a little white Irish girl you know what I mean come on <laughs> yeah but um yes no, well also what you got to remember but because what i'm talking about is is actually in terms of the work i've done right most of my sessions don't don't cover any of this at all nine times out of ten right most sessions you do certainly on records or is um it, it is such stuff that anyone could do and they're not necessarily looking for your personality anymore they're looking my case if, if i i think a lot of it was You've got a song anyone could play bass on it and go, well, we could get him, we could get him, we could get him, we could get Guy. He's a laugh. Let's get Guy. Because mm. it doesn't really matter who who's playing bass on it. So be be the person people want to have around, you know, is, I would say, is as important as anything. Because there's a load of records I'm on that you would have no idea it's me because it doesn't sound like me. And, I, you know, mm. and, also, and, and also I don't care enough about it to bring myself to it. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't because it doesn't matter. It doesn't need it. It's actually it's actually really great and quite rare when people ask me to bring me to the table. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like you know, like Pat Leonard or very much he wants Guy Pratt in the room. That's why he gets me. So, mm. but but not everyone does that. You know, a lot of the time people do just want a job done. So, yeah, and you have to serve yeah. the song and just do what's right. Serve the song, do what's right. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes don't. Some you know there are times when. Uh, you know, because that's the funny thing. I remember I once came out with this great maxim for a, a great bass player is like a great waiter. You don't know they're there. Shit just gets done. And I summarized that's bollocks, right? Because there's, it, that's utterly, yes, there's a lot of songs where that really is the case, where you really don't, you know, where it, it, you need to just be helping the song along. And there's a lot of times where it's just like, you know, frankly, you know, this song is great because the bass player just turned up and kicked the shit out of it. <laughs> You know, so there is no absolute for that. Yeah. Well, that actually brings me to another little point that's on the, uh, it's a Dahi Gilmore quote, you know, bass players are 10 a penny, but a good wit is hard to find. So we hired them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Do you know what's funny and sweet? And also slightly, right. Here's the thing. Here's the thing with that quote is that was when I was first, I first started doing my stand up, and, um, and so I thought, you know, I need all the help I can get. So I said, I said, Dave, would you mind giving me a coat? Went, yeah, sure. And he gave me that. Now the thing is, there's a story behind that. This is something I've had to fucking suffer with David for years. When, when, when Pink Floyd first had their schism, and David and Roger went their separate ways. Roger did an interview, and he was asked, so you know, how are you going to find it working without, without David? And he said, well, guitarists are ten a penny. Now, that is true. Guitarists are ten a penny. David Gilmore's really are not ten a penny, right? That clearly rankled David, okay? And it kind of stayed with him forever. So all the time, for years, I had to put up with David saying, well, bass players are ten a penny. That's it. So when I turn to him for a quote and a bit of help, and he says this lovely thing, but he still has to get it. <laughs> still, it's like you wouldn't let it lie, would you? He still has to get in that bass players are ten a penny. 
<laughs> so that's that's actually the story behind that. <laughs> yeah, but um, but it is it it is exactly what like what you said as well about like being a bit of crack to have around because I know there's some gigs I've gotten and it's like oh we get Ellen she's a bit of a laugh you know as well. So yeah, no exactly you yeah you absolutely well, yeah you, know, you like me you do stand up um very very well I should say it's very very funny oh. you should check her out if you haven't um thank you <laughs> and uh, yeah no that's what I think but also because you know bass players have this image of being sort of dark quiet and which is very often true but it's very often not it's it's very often that um. In my case, and probably yours, is that because you're quite an exuberant person, you know, you're taking care of that in your life. You don't need to bring that, you know, maybe to 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 your music. You want to bring something else. Mm. You know, it's that's where it's nice to to you know the great thing with the with the bass players is, is it's 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 the fact that it's really not all about you. It really is all about you know serving the whole. And that's a really nice, really nice place to be. You are you know you are the least audible of any member of the band. If, you know, if, if there's someone who's at a gig because they have a vague interest in music and they like this song and they like that song, you know, nine times out of ten, they don't even know what bits you're playing. And you've got to be cool with that. You yeah. know, you need to be cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> Just be happy to be there, lads. <laughs> exactly. Um, did you ever get any, you know... I mean, when you, when you go into a big band like Floyd and... Roger Waters, all his lines are there. Like, were were the rest of the band cool with what, where you were taking it musically? Like, because um, it sounds yeah, that like never you, you really I mean? that never really came up at all. Um, and, and and I had this weird thing, and and I felt I had a duty of care to it, but then at the same time, I really wasn't. As I've got older, I've got much better. I mean, like by the time of the last Gilmore p- tour, I'm just playing all of it on a precision with a pick, you know. And when you kind of think, when I look at it now, that '87 tour, I had all wrong bases. They were all wrong. Music Man, Spectre, even Betsy, all wrong. They were all the wrong bases. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wasn't really. But that's because I was just so excited to be given all these bases. It's simple as that. It's like <laughs> it's like I can play. I should really play this on a precision. But they've just given me three Spectres. <laughs> 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 so you know, that's that's kind of what that was about. And I don't think it really matters, you know, in the full, it's, you can get hung up on stuff that really doesn't matter. I mean, it, it's interesting, it's like when you see the Stones, one of the things I find interesting about the Stones is that Keith and Ronnie always make these very, very specific and utterly baffling guitar choices on mm. all the way through Stone shows. It's like, yeah, this one I'm going to play, I'm going to play Satisfaction on a 1978 G&L because... So, you know, but does it really matter? No. You know, because the record is the record and, you start, and, and you know, when you're playing live, you're making that statement now. With the sources, obviously, I try, you know, I, I play, you know, I play a Precision and I play a uh, Rickenbacker because it's, you know, that you, you're looking for more of an authenticity thing there. But, mm. but uh, to answer your question, I mean, no, no, no. What, David has this really annoying thing where... Uh, for instance, I remember watching the first rough cut of Pulse with him. And we're watching High Hopes. And in the last verse of High Hopes, there's this one little fill that I've added, right? Where it just goes... Ah, that's all. Really simple thing. And Dave, and every night, I, I'd done it for half the tour. Half the tour, and just... Oh, I hope that's all right. And, and then and David said, oh, yeah, no, I really like that. I love it when you do that. It's like... You could have told me that. You could have told me that right rather than, and I wouldn't have had to spend months worrying about it every night, you know. Or the other thing, or, or he'll then go, yeah, no, I never really liked that. Like, well, why, if you told me, I would have stopped doing it. 
Uh, but yeah, you mentioned uh, Nick Mason's saucer full of secrets there. Yes. That DVDs out and, and stuff. Yes, that's and the streaming. Yeah, and it, well, that's what you know. That's what I would have been doing a year ago, you know. Um, and we've cancelled and rebooked and cancelled and rebooked and cancelled and rebooked. Um, and annoyingly, I think as far as I, I, I don't, the one thing that didn't survive the rebooking was Dublin. Uh, I don't think we've managed oh. to rebook it, which is, I, but I'm not sure. I mean. And there's still a long, long time before we get to play it. So hopefully that yeah. is going to come back. Um, but yeah, that's, but that's the most fun thing ever, ever. Because it's, it's like, because um, I've only ever played three of these songs before, right? And, uh, and half of them have actually never been played before. So it's like being in a new band. It feels really fresh. And the fact that like, we don't have to be reverent to it. This is, it's that lovely thing of, of, you know, there was a time that Pink Floyd were a pop group, you know, before they were this huge obelisk of kind of, you know, and it's, and there was a, when, and it's suddenly just not that important. You know, we can take liberties, you can muck about, you can talk to the audience, you can, you know, and it, it's, and it's, and it's brilliant. That's the th thing of, of, um, uh, of, Rather with Pink Floyd, where you're looking at, or with David, you know, with David's gigs, you have an audience going, oh my God, it's so great that I got to hear this live. And whereas with the sources, you look at an audience who go, I was never going to hear this live. This is amazing. I never, ever thought I would hear Vegetable Man played live, you know. <laughs> and so that is fantastic. Plus, I'm fronting it, you know, with my best mate, Gary Kemp. We have such, it's so fun. And it's, you know, and, and it's really, really hard work. Well, that's what's really nice, because it's a band, everyone has a stake was involved so and it's and you'd literally just get on the bus and we gig every i mean some i'm a you know we do four four nights in a row traveling every day sleeping on a tour bus so and it's and nick is amazing i mean gary and i get much more queenie about the hotels than he does it's you know <laughs> he's loving it so when do we think you'll be out again like i mean oh, there's light at the end of the i, tournament I can't so. say what's that well there's you know the uk next year mm. um um, and then there'll be Europe and everything. I don't and, and America. I, I, it's not for me to say right now, and to, yeah. uh, other than whatever's been announced. And I can't remember what's been announced at the moment. <laughs> that's a really funny well, anyway. thing. That, that's a really funny thing because I, I this one thing I hate on on social media. People go, yeah. "Hey guys, so um, uh, when when's David Gilmore touring?" It's like, yeah, because that's how they're announced. A <laughs> random person asks me on Twitter, and I tell them. Ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, look. Uh, just keep an eye on guy. You know, guyprat.com, lads. In the future. Uh, that was, the, yeah, I, I don't. Even, I don't know if that that site's live. I might be live. I don't know. Um, um, but yeah, my YouTube channel for bass players. Then definitely, you mm. want to go to my Guy Pratt YouTube channel for my lockdown licks, which is me mm. breaking down sort of my greatest hits in an incredibly non-muso and dismissive way. Um, uh, and <laughs> yes, and listen to rock on tours wherever you get your podcasts because they really are good fun and also delving into the past if anyone has never read this book you need to read this bloody book it's Aww. absolutely hilarious um i've actually got like three copies one of which is my signed by you and one you signed and, from my brother oh isn't that nice and a yeah, rare unsigned copy <laughs> yeah i don't know where that is <laughs> my ex has that uh yes <laughs> yeah no it's still available it's on amazon apparently it's still available still in print after all these years amazing yeah absolutely yeah yeah and i still haven't turned a profit out. on it i'm still paying off my advance it wasn't even that big i don't understand i clearly signed the worst publishing deal in history yeah because it's absolutely it's it is hilarious it's brilliant i mean like the the jimmy page i mean it's full of mad stories like jimmy page stories like obviously the Madonna <laughs> one michael jackson one we heard 
amongst others, uh, Crosby, Stills and Natch, all that crack. It's absolutely hilarious. And a story yeah. about how you met the love of your life, Betsy. Yes, indeed. Betsy, yes. Do you want to see oh, Tell us about Betsy. Yeah. She's a beaut. Oh, I mean, I love the is. fact that your, your lover is, she's pink and mine's blue, you know? It's like the... What's yours called? Oh... I don't know. Oh, I need to come up with a name. Have you um, have you seen the the Rock on Tours episode with Johnny Marr? No, I'll check it out. You need to because it has the full story of Betsy on it. The never before told full story of Betsy. It's brilliant. Oh, right. Is that is that is that means that you're not going to tell us here now? No, no, I'm not. Go? No, no, because John, <laughs> John, no, because Johnny has to tell it. It's brilliant. And Johnny oh. tells it, so it's it's fantastic. And this is for the first time since you know since 1987. The story is finally actually no, it's not 1987. It was actually about. 1993. That's actually when Betsy got her name. Um, just one more question. Right. Well, back when you were doing like a stand-up, did you ever get in any stick for all the stories you told about all the famous heads, like Dave? You know, Dave. No, Cody that's the. That. You know, that's the funny thing is that um, because uh, no, I was always quite careful about the stories I told, and that um, mm. I kind of. I mean, they were because the only person who really comes out of it looking a twat is me. Um, <laughs> and even like the stuff about David Coverdale was, you know, where I do that very calm way. But that was incredibly affectionate. And we had David on Rock on Tours, and he was brilliant. And and you suddenly go, yeah, that's why, I you know, he is that guy, and he's amazing mm. and so adorable. So yeah. so no, I didn't. The funny thing is, was that when I did my second show, when I did this completely fresh show once, which is uh, Guy Pratt's Wake Up Call, and. Uh, and when I when I did my first preview, and I suddenly thought, you know, you tell all these stories about David, and you, you know, he's your he's your mate, and he's your kind of mentor, and you really, it's probably best, you know, you don't, you know. So so I left him out of the show completely, and David came to the first preview, and I could see he was clearly upset. Oh. <laughs> so, but no, because oh, they're doesn't... all they're all affectionate, and it's you know it is it's the old Oscar Wilde, isn't it? It's only one thing worse than being talked about, and that's not being talked about. That's it, yeah, that's it. I've nothing to declare with my genius. That's another good one. Completely unrelated, but I had to throw it in. Well, I've held you up long enough. Thanks so much, Guy, for uh, no, joining us today. Up at all. It's always a delight to speak to you, Ellen. No problem. Thank you very much.